0: City Image. Welcome to City Image. I'm Clay, aka L. Sterling. And this is Andy, aka Young Nassau County.
1: This week we're having a conversation with 2020 presidential candidate Mark Charles. We really wanted to talk with him because we feel he has a unique angle into a lot of issues we're facing in 2020.
0: Mark speaks with a strong conviction and clarity on American history and how that history has led us into the very moment we're in as a nation. Something that he repeated multiple times throughout the interview was that as a nation, we have to decide whether or not we, the people, referring to the American Constitution, actually applies to all people.
1: He wrestled deeply with the notion of human rights in light of the complexity of our nation's past, we welcome you to sit in the tensions that will come up in the interview. In a moment where American politics so often feels ugly and uninspiring, we feel like Mark really is a fresh voice into the conversations we're having. And we're really excited to share this interview with you. So with that being
0: said, keep it locked.
1: This is City Image.
0: Mark Charles is an independent candidate running for president in 2020. He is a dual citizen of the United States and the Navajo Nation. We are excited to hear from candidate Charles about his platform and to share his insights on several issues that are important to our society. Um, We also believe his campaign uh, has created a fresh dialogue on important matters as well as the intersection of faith and politics. And so that being said, Mark Charles, welcome to City Image.
2: Well, thank you very much. Uh, please allow me to introduce myself a moment. So to those who haven't met me yet, yate, Mark Charles Yanishia, Sin Baked Dina and the Tohiglini Bashichin, Sin In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people with our identities coming from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and so that's why I say tsin b'kei initially. Loosely translated, it means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also tsin b'kei And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is which is the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you today from Washington, D.C., which is the land of the Piscataway, and you are in uh, New York City, Queens more specifically, which is the land of the Matanekook and the Rockaway and the Lenape are all the tribes from within your area. And wherever I go or when I do interviews, I like to acknowledge the people whose land that either I'm speaking to or I'm speaking from. And so I want to acknowledge and honor the Piscataway, the Matanikuk, the Rockaway and the Lenape um, and thank them for their stewardship of these lands. And also just acknowledge uh, the humility, which I experience uh, to be living on these lands that they stewarded for these hundreds, even thousands of years. Mm. Mm. Well, wow. thank you. That's really humbling.
1: As someone who grew up in Queens and not even knowing that, uh, thank you for sharing that uh, with us. Really appreciate that. To start us off, Mark, why are you running for president?
2: <laughs> that is a very multi uh, multifaceted question. The primary vision of my campaign and what it is I'm trying to do, I've, I've been, I, I lived, I grew up in the, near the Navajo Nation in a border town known as Gallup, New Mexico. I um, attended a school that was in the process of transitioning from a boarding school a day school had a very horrific history of just the whole boarding school history of oppression and cultural genocide against Native peoples. Um, I was there as a day school student, um, which meant I had a very different experience from the students who were there as boarding school students. I have been a part of an evangelical Christian church for most of my life, the Christian Reformed Church, which has very much, both historically and even presently, bought into a lot of the tenets of the Doctrine of Discovery. And I've lived on our Navajo Nation for 11 years, uh, three of those years in a very remote part of our community. Um, We were six miles off near a paved road on a dirt road, no running water, no electricity, um... The neighbors we lived around and and with were rug weavers and shepherds, and it was while I was living there. And I had already been wrestling with some of the issues of the the church's oppression and the cultural genocide of the church um, regarding Native and Indigenous peoples. I had been meeting with Indigenous Christian leaders from all over the world. But when we moved to the reservation, one of the things I very quickly experienced is that you're... Deeply marginalized. We knew we were going to be living in this kind of off the mainstream, off the off the grid um, community. We knew that we would have to haul our water and cook, you know, and live by candlelight. Um, but what caught us completely by surprise was how deeply, deeply marginalized we felt. In fact, one of the first things we realized there it only took us a few weeks, and but it was confirmed month after month, year after year, the whole more than a decade we live there, is almost the only group of non-natives who come to Native reservations are those who come to give us charity or those who come to take our picture. Very few people come to actually get to know us, sit down, build a relationship with us, and then even actually come back. And while I was there and experiencing this really for the first time, and wrestling through all of the insecurities, all of the anger, all of the frustration I was feeling while I was in the process of not only experiencing and witnessing the historical trauma of our native peoples from things like the long walk and the boarding schools, but also seeing the intense marginalization and um, oppression of our people. And this is in the early 2000s. I began feeling a lot of anger and a lot of frustration. I was trying to pinpoint what to do with it and i was talking with a lot of my non-native friends over the phone because they weren't coming to the reservation and every time we'd start talking about this i could feel the anger the frustration um even the the grief building up in me and soon i'd have to hang up the phone so i wouldn't yell at them or you know lose lose it and so i taught myself i learned how to disassociate during these conversations and i learned to talk about these issues like i was had read them in the newspaper. So I was not emotionally connected with them. That let me stay in the dialogues longer. But then the longer I was in the dialogue, the more I saw the defenses and the insecurities of my friends come up. And soon they would actually hang up the phone because they didn't know what to do with what we were discussing. One day I was trying for, I was actually writing a letter. I like the 10th time I was trying to get my friends to understand what I was experiencing living on our Navajo Nation the largest reservation in the middle of this country, the United States of America. And in my letter, I said, being Native and living on the reservation, it feels like our Native community is this old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they violently locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture. They're eating our food. They're having a party inside our house. Now, they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later. We're tired, we're old, we're weak, we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most and that causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, speaks out with the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to on the bed, takes her hand, and simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. I wrote that and I'm like, that's it. That's exactly what I'm feeling. I was articulating for the first time in my head. I'm an extrovert. I have to get things out in front of me to know what I'm really thinking. And I started sharing that with people around me, other natives on our reservation. And they would say things to me like, I've lived here for years. It's not all my life. And I've struggled to articulate how it feels. And you're hitting the nail on the head. I would share that with non-natives. And I witnessed that instead of getting defensive, they would come back and say, what does it mean to say thank you? How does my family, my community, my church, my city, my state, my nation, express gratitude to the host people of these lands? See, now we're having a very different conversation. Now, instead of discussing victim versus oppressor, now we're talking about what I would say is this reversal of roles which is this nation has literally 300 million plus undocumented immigrants who have been flooding to these lands primarily from Europe since 1492. we have two populations, the indigenous population and the African people who were brought here and enslaved who never immigrated to these lands. And both of those histories are rooted in oppression and in this doctrine of discovery. And we have this reversal of roles. We have these 300 million, again, primarily white European descendants running around acting like they own the place. And we have indigenous peoples being treated as well as African people being pushed to the side and treated like unwanted guests in someone else's house. And so I began thinking, how do we actually have a discussion about that? Rather than playing the victim card and the oppressor card, rather than just trying to have all this this thing we don't know how to, how do we actually talk about the root of the problem? And then as I began studying the, the history and the constitution, the doctrine of discovery, realizing as great as our constitution sounds, starting with we, the people, As beautiful as the declaration of independence sounds, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. 30 lines later, it refers to natives as savages. The constitution never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, and counts enslaved Africans as three-fifths of a person. And realizing we the people have never meant all the people. Hmm. And... That's the vision I want. What I'm doing is I'm trying to, and I I say this in my campaign announcement video, which people can watch at my website, which is markcharles2020.com, but I I tell people I'm inviting you in. I I released this a year ago, end of May of 2019, and at that point, I said I'm inviting you into an 18-month journey, a conversation about American history and my goal at the end of this journey, after teaching this history, discussing this, these, these things that we've never talked about, initiating this dialogue on truth and conciliation, trying to build a common memory, I want you to vote for me for president. I don't want people to vote for me today. I'm, I'm not, I haven't convinced our nation yet. I've barely even begun the dialogue. We have we have, what, seven, eight more months left, seven more months left to mm-hmm. continue this conversation. And the way I look at it is I'm calling the question. In his final State of the Union, President Obama, reflecting on the divisiveness that he was confronted with throughout his whole eight years as our nation's first black president. And he said, in his final state of the unit, he said, we the people, he quotes the Constitution. Our Constitution began with these three simple words, words he said we've come to recognize mean all the people. He was arguing for creating a new politics. I heard those words. They sounded beautiful, but I sat in my house and asked myself, when did we decide this, Mr. President? The founding fathers did not believe we the people meant all the people. Abraham Lincoln did not believe we the people meant all the people. As good as the civil rights movement was, it did not get us to we the people meaning all the people. President Trump does not believe we the people means all the people. As beautiful as that sentiment sounds, it's not true. We've never decided as a nation that we want to be a place where we the people means all the people. And I tell people this all the time. If you don't believe me, I usually say this to white people who disagree with me, gather a room of African Americans, Native Americans, and women and read the entire Constitution out loud in front of them. And you will quickly realize how this document was never intended. Who include the people that you're reading it to because all three of those demographics are specifically excluded from the constitution so i'm calling the question i'm sick of debating who's human who's not human i'm sick of, of advocating for whose lives matter and who's don't i'm saying no we need to decide do we want to be in a place where we treat everybody as human or do we not Let's stop pretending we're something we're not. Let's teach our history. Let's create a common memory. But I'm sick of having this debate over and over and over again. And I just want our nation to decide. And if we don't, then let's stop pretending. And if we do want to be that kind of nation, then we have to fix things at the foundational level. So that, that's why I'm running for president. And my entire strategy of my campaign is about decentering whiteness. The white landowning male have placed themselves at the center of politics, of finance, of social order for 250 years in this country. They've run everything through them. I'm not saying we have to oppress white people. I'm not saying we have to mistreat them. I'm saying we need to decenter them. We need to treat them as human. See, the myth of American exceptionalism, which is rooted in the lie of white supremacy, says we have white people up here and people of color down here. And the goal is, is to get everybody up here. That's not true. Where white people exist right now is not a sustainable position. It's not sustainable environmentally. It's not sustainable economically. It's not sustainable because it's dependent upon the oppression of everybody down below. So we obviously have to lift up some of the people, most of the people at the bottom. But we have to lower white people tremendously so we're all at the same level. Now that's going to feel oppressive to white people because they're not used to being treated merely as human, but it's not oppressive. It's just treating them the way all of us are treated, which is want to be treated, which is as human. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is central to my campaign is I am trying to figure out how do I get elected? Not by centering white people and getting their money and their vote. If I get to the white house through the money And the platform of white landowning men, I will be impotent to make any sort of change. But if I can get there by the support, the resources, the voices, the votes of people at the margins, I can actually get there with enough of my integrity intact to actually fight for change and even invoke change, institute change. So how I run this campaign is just as important as what I'm running on. Wow.
1: As a, as a black man that, um, I mean, so much of what you said really speaks to the way that I feel about who I am in this country, uh, my experience in this country. Um, and to hear somebody who echoes what I'm feeling, even just the going back to the foundation and addressing the foundation, because I think that is that's clearly the heart of the racial issues uh, in America um, and something yeah. that we don't go back to do. You you can't create new systems without addressing the ideals that got us to those systems in the first place. I I, I just truly appreciate that. As a black man in this country, uh, it's been a tough week for me. After seeing yet another uh, shooting of another unarmed black man, in this case, it was Ahmaud Aubrey in Georgia, race continues to be a profound issue in this nation. Uh, What qualifies you to deal with what are clearly still the deep racial divides in our nation?
2: Yeah. One of the very transform- well, several transformative things have happened to me over the past 10 to 15 years of my life, especially as I've studied the doctrine of discovery and wrestled with how to articulate it and engage our conversation, our nation in, the, in a dialogue. And one of the things, actually one of the most freeing moments I've had as a Navajo man, who's also a U.S. citizen, is when I acknowledged publicly both to myself, well, I acknowledge to myself as well as publicly that the Constitution doesn't exist in its current form to give people of color or women justice. That's not why we have a Constitution. Constitution was written to protect white landowning men. Acknowledging that doesn't change what I'm working towards, but it definitely changes my expectations, and it helps me to, to understand more directly what I need to address. One of the challenges we face in this nation is because we don't acknowledge how deeply white supremacist, racist, and sexist our foundations are, is we think most of the oppression comes from that demographic or that specific person or that specific event. And so we attack our focus our energies on those individuals or those groups. And so one of, you know, when when I, I saw the video and I watched what happened and I listened to the narrative, I was horrified, as most of the nation was. I wasn't shocked. I wasn't shocked. We celebrate every year on July 4th a document that calls Native savages. We hold up as our greatest president Abraham Lincoln, who, when you study his history, was the most white supremacist and genocidal president in our nation's history. It's not shocking to me that two white men hunt and kill the black man. And even when they were confessed or said they did it, they weren't arrested. That doesn't shock me. It horrifies me. It doesn't shock me. Justice for Ahmad Osbury should not be dependent upon someone taking the video. If justice for my people or for your people is dependent upon someone capturing it on video and releasing it at a time when our nation actually cares, that's not justice. I've responded to this with, I hope, great empathy, but also with trying to help people understand what the root of the problem is. We have a constitution that specifically excludes black people. We have a constitution that has never abolished slavery. So let's not act surprised when white people hunt and kill black people and law enforcement knows about it and nothing happens. Let's not be surprised at that. That's what our foundations were written for. Let's be horrified. Let's call it out. But let's say we need to fix the foundation. I, I was there's a, an issue going on, and last week was actually the the National Day of Awareness for an issue called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. I wear my my hair tied in a red CA, red yarn, to publicize and personally acknowledge this crisis within Indian Country. Where literally hundreds, thousands of Indigenous women have gone missing, they've been reported as murdered, and In case after case after case, not only have their cases never been closed, but in many instances, they've never been opened. Local, county, state, federal law enforcement have done almost nothing to follow up on many, many, many of these cases, leaving the families to personally go out and try and find out what happened to their loved ones. It's a crisis known as missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And when I was at the Frank Lemire Native American Presidential Forum last August, they asked the candidates about these things. I was there with, with Bernie Sanders. I was there with um, Elizabeth Warren. I was there with um, Julian Castro. I was there with Kamala Harris. And all of them said something to the effect that they would enact a new law. They would craft a new policy to address this very vulnerable demographic. But when your Declaration of Independence calls native savages, your Constitution never mentions women, perhaps you shouldn't be surprised when your indigenous women go missing or get murdered Mm. and society doesn't give a crap. Mm. A new law isn't gonna solve this problem because the problem is the basis for our laws. We wanna fix this problem, we have to fix the foundation. The solution to what happened so Maude Arbery is not let's arm everybody with video cameras. It's let's fix the foundations to our nation so that everybody is counted as human. Does that mean everything's going to be perfect after that? No, but it gives us the legal foundations to begin to craft and enact solutions. Whereas right now, we're, we are literally arguing over what color to paint the rooms in the house. Well, the foundation is crumbling, which is what's causing the walls to crack and the plaster to fall and the paint to crack in the first place.
0: Yeah. Wow.
2: So so this is really what I'm trying to do with people. is Yes, this is absolutely a horrifying situation and it never should have happened. I completely agree. But if we... Think we can solve it by simply addressing that local police force, are dealing with those judges, are dealing with those specific officers, and not actually fix the foundations? We're kidding ourselves. We have to fix the foundations if we want to see a solution that doesn't involve someone capturing it on camera. Well, wow, yeah, yeah. You mentioned um,
1: the abolition of slavery. You know, I think many people would hear slavery was abolished 150 years ago. How would you explain your position in light of that
2: notion? See, there's this, there's a, a myth. Not, it's not even a myth. It's a flat out lie that Abraham Lincoln was this great humanitarian who loved black people and fought for the little guy. It's a flat out lie. We have a 13th Amendment, which is the basis of Abraham Lincoln's legacy, which most people think's abolished slavery. They think what it says is neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States or any place under their jurisdiction. That's not what it says. What it actually says is neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereas the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. The 13th Amendment doesn't abolish slavery. It redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. We incarcerate our citizens at the highest rate of any country in the world, and we incarcerate our people of color at three to five times the rate we incarcerate white people. To understand the 13th Amendment, you have to understand the Lincoln-Douglas debates. In the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Abraham Lincoln states he has no intention of making voters or jurors of Negroes. He has no intention of qualifying them to hold office or to intermarry. He said there is a physical difference between the white and black race, which he believes will forever forbid the two living in terms of social and political equality. And as long as they must remain together, there has to be a difference between superior and inferior. And he, as much as any other man, believes a superior position belongs to the white race. He was a blatant white supremacist. Both he and Judge Douglas believed in the lie of white supremacy. They disagreed on slavery. Judge Douglas believed we needed slavery to keep white supremacy intact. Abraham Lincoln was quite confident we could keep white supremacy even without the institution of chattel slavery. Judge Douglas wanted to draw a distinction, so he accused Lincoln of applying the Declaration of Independence to white pe- or to black people. Abraham Lincoln said, "Well, I, I think the Declaration was meant to include all people, but not in all regards. Not in regards to size." intellect, moral capacity, I forget the exact words he used. He wasn't talking about individuals. Some people are taller, some people are smarter, some people are. No, he's talking about race. Judge Douglas wanted to draw another distinction and accused Lincoln of wanting to make citizens of black people. Everyone said, well, you've never asked me that question before, but you'll never have to ask me again, because I will tell you right now, I am against Negro citizenship, he says, I believe the states have the right to make Negro citizens if they want, but should the state of Illinois enact that, I would be opposed to it. So as president, Abraham Lincoln had a challenge. He absolutely believed in the lie of white supremacy. He had no intention of making voters or jurors of black people or of qualifying them to hold office or to intermarry. He didn't believe the Declaration of Independence applied to them, and he didn't believe they should ever become citizens. So, what, But he wanted to end slavery because it was dividing white people. So what do you do in that situation where you don't believe Black people are equal, but you want to end this institution known as chattel slavery? What do you do? What do you do with all these Black people, people of color who you don't want to fully integrate into society? Well, you keep slavery legal in prison, which allows a white judge, a white juror, a white law enforcement officer to on a whim, arrest, hunt, even kill Black people.
1: If you grew up in this country, uh, like I did, Abraham Lincoln is like Superman for black people. He saved us all, right? Because that's what you learn in your history books, right? But the facts would clearly show something different. You mentioned earlier uh, the doctrine of discovery. What is the doctrine of discovery and how does this concept impact our country's uh, founding and how does it impact us today?
2: I wrote a book on the doctrine. It's called... Unsettling truths, the three most um, unsettling truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. Professor Seung-chan Ra from North Park Seminary was my co-author. There's been other people um, who have written on this topic for years, decades. Stephen Newcomb um, wrote a, a book called uh, Pagans in the Promised Land, which is a fantastic book talking about the doctrine of discovery. The Doctrine of Discovery is essentially a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic Church, written between 1452 and 1493. It says things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, Those people are less than human and their land is yours to take. This is literally the doctrine now that European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent and enslave the people. They didn't believe they were human. The same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world, which was already inhabited by millions and claimed to have discovered it. You cannot discover lands already inhabited. That's known as stealing. The fact that we have history books, monuments, Proclamations referring to Columbus as the discoverer of America reveals the bias, the racial bias, which is that native peoples, people of color, are not fully human. So that's what gets embedded into the foundation. This is why the Declaration of Independence, "All men are created equal," and later calls native savages. They're not. We're not human. Why the Constitution specifically excludes natives? specifically excludes women, counts African people who've been enslaved as three-fifths. They don't believe us to be human. This doctrine and the way it's been embedded into the foundations of our nation, and this is just, um, this is just one of the touch points. All, so much of, of our national theology as a country is based on this doctrine And in this belief that Europeans are God's chosen people and Turtle Island under North America is their promised land. And and the book goes deep into that. It talks about how the church got from the teachings of Jesus who said to, to love your neighbor and to pray for those who persecute you, how it got from there to a doctrine that said kill anybody who doesn't look, act, sound, speak, or worship like you. And then how did that doctrine get embedded into the foundation to the church? How has the church not been a prophet to the empire, but instead emboldened and actually gave the empire permission to do much of the injustices it's done over the past 3,000, 2,000 years? The book is really trying to deconstruct all of that. It goes in depth into U.S. history, into church history. And I, I tell people, no matter where I am, it doesn't matter what religion you are. You can be Christian, you could be atheist, you could be Muslim, you could be Hindu. If you live in the United States of America and you've never questioned your ability to buy and sell land here, the reason you don't worry about that is because of this doctrine of discovery, this narrative of promised lands, this justification of genocide that's been embedded into the foundations of the country. You don't even have to be a Christian to allow those beliefs to let you go to sleep at night because that's what the nation tells itself. And so wherever I go, I tell people that if you don't understand the history of the Christian church, you will never understand the history of our country. And this is a big part of the dialogue that the book is trying to bring up, which is how do we begin to talk about this, even though we're not a Christian nation, we're a secular nation, we're a pluralistic nation. But how do we still deal with this heresy that came out of the Christian church and has embedded itself into everybody's theology who calls himself an American? I just love the way that you're,
1: you're articulating fact. I, it, it's giving words. You're able to communicate in a way that I don't think I've been able to communicate what it is that I'm feeling. Um, so thank you for giving words, words to that and being yeah. able to, towards, to the voiceless, um, really you centered your views on immigration around the necessity of having native peoples at the table. What would be the impact um, of native people being at the center of immigration reform?
2: There's a difference between power and authority. Power is the ability to act. Authority is the right of jurisdiction, the permission to act. I was out herding sheep one day. This was when I was living on the reservation This is early 2000, 2003, 2004, I forget what year, maybe 2005. President Bush was in office. He was just engaging a more national dialogue on immigration reform. I was out herding sheep with one of my neighbors. He was a boarding school survivor, spoke better Navajo than English. We're walking through the fields. And I said to him, I said, the nation's talking about immigration reform. I'm curious. You've lived here most of your life. What are your thoughts? What do you think our country should do? And he said to me, he said, well, there's already so many of them here. Maybe we shouldn't worry about borders anymore. Now, if we were anywhere else in the country, you would hear those words and immediately assume he was talking about the 14 million undocumented who've come over our southern border. But because we're on a reservation, because we're both native, because he's a boarding school survivor, you have to at least pause and ask, was he talking about the 14 million or the 300 million? And I love that ambiguity so much. I didn't even ask him to clarify. I just left it there. And I began advocating after that and saying that without Native Americans at the table, without the indigenous hosts of Turtle Island at the center of this conversation, the United States of America is incapable of comprehensively and justly reforming immigration law. Without Natives at the table, all you have is one generation of undocumented immigrants trying to figure out what to do with another generation of undocumented immigrants. And there's no integrity in the dialogue. It doesn't matter if you're building a wall to keep people out or you're tearing one down to let people in. If you do not have the indigenous people of Turtle Island at the center of your conversation, you don't have the integrity, the authority to do either. If you listen to the dialogue around our nation, and this is before the pandemic, but even now you'll hear it frequently, we were telling ourselves We've built the greatest military in the history of the world. Wall Street was saying over and over, almost daily, we've created the most financially wealthy economic system in the history of the world. Our nation is obsessed with power. Power is the ability to act. You will hear we almost never talk about authority. Because by and large, we don't have any as a nation. If we lose our nuclear arsenal and we go bankrupt, name for me the countries that give a crap what we say. Almost none. Why? Most of the people listen to us because either they want our money or they don't want us to blow them up. We have a ton of power. We have almost no authority. And that's the way the country governs itself. That's the way we interact in foreign policy. Everything is based on our power. And so what I'm saying is let's actually try to craft some laws that have some authority. Well, who has the most authority regarding immigration? I would say it's the indigenous peoples of the land. So what if we were to allow this demographic to help shape our policy? I can't promise what they're gonna say. I'm not gonna even dictate what they're gonna say. If I become president, I intend to gather a table, specifically including native voices, and I wanna start with their input on what do we need to do about immigration reform? Wow. Now, so. to a lot of white people, that's, that's gonna sound terrifying, but that's where the conversation needs to start. That's, that, so that's what I'm advocating for. That's what I'm saying we need, we need to, if we really wanna have a conversation about reforming immigration law, we have to include not just in a token way, in a more central way, the voices of the indigenous nations of Turtle Island.
0: You mentioned foreign policy, and as commander in chief, you would inherit two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, along with a whole host of global military operations. Um, Could you expand a little bit more about how you would navigate foreign policy?
2: Absolutely, one of the first people I would love to nominate Is I want to see a Native American as our Secretary of State. I would love to not only sit in the Oval Office as a Navajo man as president, but I would love to have the the face of our country's relationships with the world be someone who is indigenous to these lands. Again, there are crises going out there, going on out there. But because our nation has been led, represented by, and operated, not only on this understanding of power, but by the group of people that colonized this country and has never dealt with their own history here, that has allowed for so much, I don't know what the word to use, we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. We've never learned from our history because we don't know how to acknowledge our history. One of, the, one, of the, the key, one of the key planks of my platform is I want to initiate a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. A conversation that's on par with the truth and reconciliation commissions that happen in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. I would call ours truth and reconciliation, though, because reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony. Mm-hmm. I use the term truth and conciliation, there's a, a native leader from Canada. His name is George Erasmus. He's part of the Dené people up there. And he said, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. If you want to build a community, he said, you have to start by creating common memory. Our nation, not only does it have a history of the enslavement of African people, but it has a literal history of genocide against native peoples, actual genocide. I want to read you this quote. There's a quote by Peter Burnett, who was the first governor of California in 1851. This is what he said in his state of the state address. So this isn't just something he's talking at dinner with someone. This is his state of the state address. He said that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct, must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or wisdom of man to avert. He's not saying famine's broken out and we can't feed these native peoples and therefore they're dying. Nor is he saying disease has spread and we can't stop it, therefore they're dying. He's literally saying this nation with its manifest destiny cannot stop killing these people until they become extinct a decade later in 1862 abraham lincoln blatant white supremacist becomes president and signs two bills the pacific railway act and um, the uh, settlement act and within two and a half years of signing these bills the pacific railway act provides the land and the resources to um, complete the transcontinental Railway, which at that point had reached Omaha, Nebraska. The Homestead Act allots 160 acres to any family or citizen that goes west and homesteads for five years. Within two and a half years, three years of signing that bill, Abraham Lincoln has literally, through atrocities like the massacre at Sand Creek in Colorado, like the Long Walk and the removal of the Navajo and the Mescalero Apache from New Mexico, like the hanging of the Dakota 38 and the removal of of most of the tribes from the state of Minnesota, Abraham Lincoln has literally ethnically cleansed the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and New Mexico, which are three of the primary states along the route of the Transcontinental Railway, the Northern Route, the Central Route, and the Southern Route, literally making him one of the most genocidal presidents in the history of our nation. I ask people when I lecture frequently, let's pretend for a moment, okay? Because who writes the history? The victors. Let's pretend for a moment that Nazi Germany wins World War II. How do their history books record Adolf Hitler, the greatest leader ever? How do their history books record the Holocaust? Well, we have Holocaust deniers today. Imagine if they won the war. What Holocaust? There was no Holocaust. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the way we treat Abraham Lincoln. We credit him with winning the Civil War. He didn't, the Civil War was just an internal spat between white supremacists. The war he actually won was the War of Manifest Destiny. Imagine had he won the Civil War but not been able to remove the tribes from the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and New Mexico, therefore never making huge steps in completing the Transcontinental Railway. His legacy would be long forgotten. We honor him, not because of his myth that he freed the slaves. We honored him because he was a blatant white supremacist and genocidal president who helped this nation ethnically cleanse the continent to complete its manifest destiny. That is why we honor him. There's a whole slew of history here that we don't know how to talk about. We don't know what to do with. And, and this is why at the heart of my platform is this national dialogue on race, gender, and class. as something on par with the TRCs in South Africa, Rwanda, and Canada. We have this history. We have no clue what to do with. And so we send, we've been sending for 50, 60 years, a bunch of white landowning men into the Middle East to try and negotiate a land dispute that is thousands of years old. And most of the people, all the people we're sending over there probably cannot even name the name of the indigenous nation that once inhabited the lands where their very home sits. Hmm. And we're sending them off to settle a land dispute thousands of miles away and thousands of years older. We're never gonna, that, we're, that's not a way to solve that problem. Who are most of our allies? Other colonial nations, right? The UK, France, Germany. Why are they our allies? We're all pretty colonial. <laughs> we have a lot of common values. We need to have a pretty honest conversation with the people we call our friends. So our, our foreign policy, because we don't know our own history, because we've never dealt with the things we've done on our own continent, both against Native peoples, against women, and against Africans we brought here and enslaved. It's no surprise our foreign policy is as jacked up as it is.
1: Yeah.
2: It's like, we, we, because we've never dealt with these things, we literally are clueless as to what we're doing on the, on the global stage. I would love to nominate a Native American as my secretary of state. Think how transformative that would be to our relationship with nations all around the world, not only the people who we're in conflict with, but the people who we call our allies. What kind of conversations could we have with them? Not even necessarily aggressive confrontation, but just honest conversations like you and I are having now. And how healing and necessary could those conversations be to having and understanding what does it mean to live in a global community. There's a profound clarity
0: that I think your recentering of these conversations has. As we shift gears a little bit, COVID nineteen that's something that has certainly been revealing cracks in our foundation for a lot of people. Um, it was recently revealed that the Navajo Nation has one of the highest rates of COVID nineteen in the nation, and so what. Has COVID 19 revealed about inequality in the United States?
2: Yeah. I mean, COVID 19 is a horrific pandemic that is wreaking havoc globally. It's being exacerbated. Its damage is being amplified by the white supremacist, racist, and sexist foundations, not just in the US, but that exists around the world it's identifying the, the huge challenges we have in our healthcare systems, the inequality of our healthcare delivery. It's, ch- it, it's, it's demonstrating how deeply broken our economy is. You know, we, for literally up until February, President Trump was pouting that he had built the greatest economic system in the history of the world. And he had a little bit of evidence. Unemployment was at unprecedented lows. Corporate profits were unprecedented highs. You would think if there was ever a point in the United States history when our economy should have been able to handle a crisis like COVID-19, it would have been in February and March of 2020. And it took five days for the thing to come crumbling down. Five days. And it's demonstrated that even today, the people we're calling essential workers who are at the front lines, not just in the hospitals, but working in our grocery stores, delivering our food, they're by and large people of color. And even today, they're working for minimum wage with no health care. And we're calling them essential. You know, the, the the things going on around the country, how this is afflicting. And it's not that, yes. Anyone can catch the virus. In that sense, we're all equal. It's afflicting afflicting everybody. But the people we're putting most frequently in harm's way, the people we're asking to work on the front lines, the people we're requiring to go to work, the people who have the least amount of health, are the people who have the least amount of health insurance, the least amount of resources, and by and large, they're people of color. And so this is... Yeah, the the crisis with COVID, again, it's not that it's revealing anything shocking or new. It's revealing what is at the base in the first place. You know, I, I was, there is a crisis going on on the Navajo Nation, but it's, it's even worse than most people know. The Navajo Nation, I actually read one story this morning, so I went to this morning, that said the infection rate is now higher in the Navajo Nation than it is, was in New York or in New Jersey. I don't, I haven't. Verified those numbers, I have heard frequently it, it's it 's the third highest, but it could even now be the highest They're, I think they 've now reached three thousand infections in within a population of two hundred thousand mm-hmm. and over a hundred deaths um, and so and i live this is where I lived for eleven years with my family. Now, the history of the Navajo Nation with the United States is horrible, as I already mentioned earlier, it was President Lincoln who ordered the long walk and rounded up our people from the Southwest and marched us down to Buscadondo, nearly a quarter of our people died in this genocidal ethnic cleansing act. And the place we were rounded up from and at is right near Gallup, New Mexico, which is a border town to the Navajo Nation. It's the city I grew up in. When we had been removed down to Boscuidando, the government took control of those lands. And when they brought our Navajo people back after we signed a treaty a few years later, we were put on a much smaller piece of land north of Gallup. And the railway went right through Gallup along Route 66. The, the, The country has never, the community has never dealt with that history and today, over the years, Gallup has set itself up as a commercial hub for the Navajo Nation, both exploiting as well as becoming an essential hub for our people. The Navajo Nation is, is a, um, a food desert. It's 26,000 square miles. The last I heard, there were 13 grocery stores. When I lived there, we moved from there just five years ago these are the numbers we were hearing. It's a food desert. We don't have enough grocery stores to feed all of our people. The border towns are absolutely essential. And so Gallup, which has a population of about 20,000, actually serves a broader population of about maybe 60,000 people or even 80,000 people. And on the weekends, many people from both the Navajo Nation and the Zuni Pueblo, which is south of Gallup, will go into Gallup to buy groceries, do laundry, to socialize, to so on and so forth. Now, as the Navajo Nation has been dealing with this very high rate of infection, our leaders have had an overwhelming challenge of getting our people to social distance. There's many reasons for these challenges. It's against our culture. Most of your relationships are your family And most of us can agree it's easier to break social distancing rules with family than it is with strangers. And third, when you live on the reservation, you feel like you're cut off from the rest of the nation. So what you see on the news, 99.9% of the time has nothing to do with what you deal with in your daily life. And so you feel like what's going on out there is out there, and that doesn't affect us here. All of these things factor into the huge challenges our leadership has had with getting our people to take social distancing seriously. This is one of the reasons the infection rate is so high. McKinley County, which is where Gallup resides, was getting increased infection. They were becoming the highest county in New Mexico with COVID-19 infections. And on the first weekend of May, the city appealed to the governor, and asked the governor to invoke the riot control act so they could close all of the roads into gallup now gallup is a long i-40 and gets a lot of i-40 traffic but the bulk of the traffic into gallup comes from the south and the north which is the zuni and the navajo nation they wanted to close the city to these populations in an effort to keep infection from spreading worse now i don't deny there's a need to keep infection from spreading worse but to invoke the, novel, the, the riot control act and do it under that, to essentially cut off economic access for people from a city that has made itself essential to the daily living of these people. And to do it on the first weekend of the month, most of, a lot of our Navajo people live on fixed incomes, getting some sort of check from the government on the first of the month, which makes that weekend Some of the busiest shopping days because people are low on food. They have to do laundry. They have to even haul water. You have to go to Gallup. And on that first weekend of the month, they shut down all the roads into Gallup, invoking the Riot Control Act. They didn't close the stores. They didn't just enforce social distancing. They blocked the roads with National Guard. I was livid. I actually wrote a statement from my campaign addressing that. And the the problem was, is there was no good solution. This problem was 250 years in the making. And now in 2020, because not only the city of Gallup, but our nation, because it's never dealt with its history and dealt with the systemic racism and white supremacy that's in our foundations. Now we had this problem and the government chose as its solution to lock the doors. And literally block native peoples from buying groceries. And it doesn't even get picked up by the news. The story of it being locked down does, but this injustice doesn't. I actually contacted reporters saying, hey, this is a national story. Here's what I've written. Let's talk about it. Oh, we don't have time to address this. So, yeah, this is this is COVID-19 is absolutely demonstrating that the foundations of this nation were never written to include everybody, whether it's how tests are administered, or how tests, how, how the availability of tests is, whether it's how insurance is has access to or who's working on the front lines to how they're being compensated. All of these things are just demonstrating how deeply broken our foundations are and how they were never meant to include everybody.
0: One of the other fruits, so to speak, of COVID-19 was that March 2020 was the first month since 2002 without a U.S. school shooting. Gun control and the Second Amendment remains one of the most urgent and divisive issues that our country has. And so how would you handle this polarizing issue as president?
2: The Second Amendment, if you read the Second Amendment, what it says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the the Second Amendment establishes two things, a well-regulated militia and the right of the people to keep and bear arms. So this defines the not even the debate, the screaming match that happens every few months here in the U.S. regarding this amendment. You have people on, the, on, on one side who will scream that a well-regulated militia, we have to have the right to regulate this. Everyone on the other side is saying, no, the, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, and so you can't regu- regulate this at all. It's a screaming match. But again, if you look at our history, the reason the government wanted militias, this is written in the 1780s and 90s. The reason we needed a militia, you only have to read the Declaration of Independence to figure that out. The Declaration of Independence accuses the king of raising the conditions of new appropriations of land and states that he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and brought on the inhabitants of our country, the merciless Indian savages. They were afraid that as they expanded west into native lands, The merciless Indian savages would pose a problem. And so they wanted, they needed a well-regulated militia, a civilian army to protect it. And if you look throughout our history, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or others, militias have been used over and over and over again to ethnically cleanse Native peoples and to terrorize Black people. That's how they've been used throughout our history. The second statement, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. The people, we have to, language is very important. This was written in the, in the 1890s, I think it was, or 1790s, sorry, not 18, 1790s. This is part of the Bill of Rights, which was the first group of amendments made to the Constitution. Now, the Constitution uses similar language, which is we the people. Again, that sounds great, sounds inclusive, but if you read Article 1, Section 2, defining who is and who is not included, who is under this document, who is not. It never mentions women, specifically excludes natives and counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. People literally means white men. So we have the right of the people. In 1780s and 90s, people meant white men. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In the early 1900s, we had a situation in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it was called Black Wall Street, one of the most prosperous Black neighborhoods in the country, the most amount of Black-owned businesses in this neighborhood of, of anywhere else in the country, Black Wall Street. There was a young Black man who worked as a shine on the street, and he had a, an agreement with the owner of a building behind him that he could use the bathroom in that building. And so one day, he got in, went into the building, used the bathroom, and took the elevator up to the floor to where the bathroom was. And there was a young lady who was running the elevator. Halfway up, she screamed and jumped out of the elevator. And he was arrested and accused of assaulting her. They brought him down to the police station and the men of the city, the black men of the city went to protect their own. She declined to press charges. The confrontation between the city and the black men became violent. And the city deputized white people and they literally blocked off that section of the city, black section of the city. They didn't let fire departments in. They didn't let police in. And they literally burned it. They went in. They, they started shooting and arresting black people. People, some of the white citizens were flying over that section of the city in their personal planes, dropping homemade bombs so they could burn Black-owned businesses and homes. Forty-eight hours that went on. They finally let law enforcement back in. They let they let um, fire departments back in. They put the fires out. But because they termed it a riot, not a single insurance claim was paid to any of the black citizens of that city, and the press never covered it. After that, this early 1900s, there not a single issue of gun control came up. In the 1960s, the Black Panthers in Oakland decided that the, Black, the Second Amendment might apply to them too. And so they armed themselves and began policing the police. They would show up when Black people were being arrested or being questioned. They would remind the Black people of their rights. They would stand there armed to make sure that nothing happened bad to their people. They were allowed to do this because the Second Amendment. There was no gun control. Later, they decided to protest, and they went to the state capitol, fully armed, and began walking through the capitol in protest. They made it about halfway until they got arrested, but they couldn't be detained because they weren't breaking the law. Within, I think, three months, California had bipartisan gun control passed by the NRA. Why? Because the Second Amendment does not exist to allow people of color the right to bear arms. It exists to protect white people the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It didn't mean black people. They meant white people. And when white people did something horrific in Tulsa in the early 1900s, not a single legislation was passed. But when black people decided to peacefully use their show of arms to protect their own, suddenly the second amendment is dripping in implicit racial bias and white supremacy. And it's, it's so full of that bias that it is essentially a useless piece of legislation or a piece of, it's an, a useless amendment. I'm advocating, we absolutely need gun reform. And the first step in that process is getting rid of the second amendment And using as a basis for our law or even writing a basis for our law, something that actually applies to everybody instead of what we have today, which is essentially creating militias to terrorize and commit genocide against Native peoples and Black people and protecting the rights of white people. Again, because we don't know our history, because we don't look at the language of how these things were written and how it's been applied throughout the course of our nation, we end up having these Streaming matches that aren't actually about the issues at hand. This law, this amendment, is dripping in white supremacy and implicit racial bias, mm-hmm. and we just have to get rid of it. You know,
1: I, if I put myself in in the shoes of uh, someone who is of white privilege, I would I would be listening to this interview, and I would just be going, "Oh man, this guy is fighting to take away the rights." of of me my family um aka white folks and I'm listening to this as a black man and just going this person is fighting for the soul of our country I mean you want to go back to uh dealing with the foundation I mean it's just like dealing with sin and, and repentance right like you can't really repent without addressing the sin itself addressing the real issue. If yeah. I have an addiction, I can, I could try to like, okay, I won't, I won't do that thing on this day or I won't, but I'm never really addressing the heart of the problem. I've never really repented. And I look at our nation as a nation that has never truly repented. And we just go on and on and on and pretend like the issue isn't still there, it's still plaguing, still causing, um, all these issues later on down the road. Um, so I hope that any of our listeners um, who made who may feel uh, like what I was saying earlier really understands that um, mark I don't think that you're you're just fighting for native people you're just fighting for uh, the poor the disenfranchised and marginalized you are fighting for the very
2: absolutely nation you know I want to live it, in a nation where for the very first time we the people truly means all the people the biggest challenge we face is we've always, fought these, these things in silos. And I'm saying we have, to, we have to find a way to include everybody. This isn't just an African-American fight or a Native fight or a, a woman fight. Or it's, we, have to, we have to have this as broad and as inclusive as possible. And we have to deal not with this person or that president or that party or this legislation. We have to deal with the foundations. I'm, I'm absolutely—that's what I believe wholeheartedly, and that's what I'm trying to do with this campaign.
0: In order for you to have this position and platform, the reality is, is you would have to overcome the current two-party system. And many people view third-party or independent candidates as either lacking a viable chance to winning or, as a spoiler, for one of the two major candidates in the race— How is your campaign accounting for this? And what do you think it would take to change this narrative?
2: When I, when I looked at my campaign and I made the decision to run, I made the very intentional decision to run as an independent and not as a Democrat or a Republican. Most people would say, and I've been told numerous times, Oh, had I run as a Democrat, I could have had a broader audience. I could have raised more money. I could have maybe been in some of the early debates. And I don't disagree. Our nation has a two-party system, and it elevates voices within those systems. But because both of those systems are controlled by white landowning men, neither system is ever really able to advocate for change, not deep foundational systemic change. And neither system will really amplify or hold up the voices of people from the margins. Again, they're both about perpetuating the system. I gave a talk Um, A TEDx talk about 18 months ago. It's titled We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. And I talk about the doctrine of discovery and how that became the legal precedent for land titles. And I examine in that talk a case um, written, uh, an opinion of the Supreme Court written in 2005 that references in the first footnote the doctrine of discovery and concludes that Natives still are not allowed sovereignty over their lands based on these dehumanizing ways of thinking. And I identify and demonstrate how this is one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court opinions written in my lifetime. And it was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Again, the reason is when your land titles are based on a dehumanized doctrine of discovery, white supremacy becomes a bipartisan value. You know, the the this last election, we had the most diverse pool of candidates in the Democratic Party ever to run for president. More women, more people of color, members of the LGBTQ community than any other election prior. Had I run as a Democrat, I could have been in the debate right along with them. I could have probably raised a few million dollars and got some airtime. But all of those voices were removed from the stage because... The primary system runs through Iowa and New Hampshire. Iowa is the fifth whitest state in the country. New Hampshire is the third. Mm-hmm. Iowa has the highest rate of private lands of any country, of any state in the country. New Hampshire has the highest rate of homeownership. Both the Democrats and the Republicans mandate that their primaries run through these two states, essentially setting up white landowning men as the gatekeeper for presidential politics. And they did a very good job. They effectively removed almost all the people of color and most of the women from the debate, from the, the, the primary stage, even before they got to the first primary. Wow. And it didn't take long after that to remove all of them. So had I run, I absolutely could have raised more money. I could have been in the debates, but I had no chance of ever being nominated. And I didn't want to run against other Democratic candidates. I was on I was on, um, after the Franklin mayor Native American Presidential Forum, I was on Democracy Now. And Amy said to me in the interview, she said she said something about my opponent, Kamala Harris. And I said, no, Kamala's not my opponent. Kamala and the other Democrats are running in the Democratic primary and they are battling each other for the nomination. I said, I'm an independent. My eventual opponent will be Donald Trump and whoever ends up emerging from the Democratic Party. Mm. Mala is not my opponent. And so I ran as an independent so I could survive that primary system Mm. and I could actually have a campaign where my opponents would actually be the Democratic and the Republican nominee. And I just, as I expected, Even out of that very diverse pool of candidates they had, the Democrats decided on a white landowning male from the 1% to be their nominee. So now, even though I'm not nearly as well known as I would have been had I run as a Democrat, now that I don't have near the money or the platform that I could have had for a few months, but my campaign is still functioning And now I actually have an opportunity to actually insert myself into this dialogue and to try to deconstruct this two-party system, which both parties are about maintaining our foundations and the the unequal systems we have in place. Mm. So, yeah, so, you know, one, one of the biggest challenges right now is, 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 is coming from people on the left who are saying, well, you got to vote for Biden no matter who, you got to vote blue no matter who. And it's like, no, I, you don't. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I wrote an article about, I forget the title of it, but basically both parties are peddling these uninspiring white landowning men who have very little vision, they're all running off nostalgia. They're all running about how great things used to be, whether it was four years ago or whether it was 12 years ago, but they're all running off nostalgia from the past. Well, the only people who have a nostalgic memory about our country are white people because we've never abolished slavery, because women have never had equal rights, because to this day, land titles are based on a doctrine of discovery. The past has never been great for people from the margins. So the only people you're gonna get through a campaign of nostalgia is white people. And that is who Joe Biden and Donald Trump are fighting for. This allows me, this, this is, this, the fact that it's Joe Biden and Donald Trump now, and the fact that all of it is online instead of in person, actually gives me a lot of advantage. Yeah, I'm not able to attract the thousands or tens of thousands of people to a rally that Donald or Joe might be able to do. But I will be able to engage people online personally much more effectively than either of them will ever be able to. They may have great teams around them. They may have better access to technology. They may be able to buy more ad time but as far as actually having someone who's engaging with a vision in front of the camera, Oh, hands down. Donald Trump understands reality television. He doesn't get social media.
0: Yeah.
2: And so there's a lot of things that are working in my favor now that I'm in the race and that the race essentially has been 99% moved To a virtual or online space. Mm. And one of the things I'm, one of the reasons I'm running in 2020 is I saw an opportunity where this is one of the few moments in history where you still could have a national, even a global platform for the price of a library card. There is still the potential to reach millions and millions of people without having to pay for it. We're not quite, we're not there yet, but that potential exists in 2020 and that potential will be smaller in 2024, smaller in 2028, and probably gone by 2032. Hmm. So this, as horrible as the pandemic is, and as much as I would never wish this reality on anybody at any point at any time, the opportunity to have a virtual campaign definitely plays to some of my strengths
0: a lot of the people that are listeners to our podcast do happen to be people of faith and i'm sure they'd like to hear a little bit about how your faith impacts your approach and posture towards these issues that you've been discussing and so we'd love to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about that
2: yeah i'm a follower of jesus i'm a Christian. I've been a member of the Christian Reformed Church for most of my life. I served on the Board of Trustees for the denomination. I do some consulting with the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. Um, I published my book through InterVarsity Press, which is another evangelical publishing house. I've been a part of the church for all of my life. But one of the things I'm adamant about is I'm not the Christian candidate. In my book, I, I highlight for people one of the, the major downfalls of the church is when through the teachings of Eusebius and the conversion of Constantine, the church rejects the barometer of suffering that Christ gave it for its discipleship and it embraced the barometer of prosperity and it began to prop up empire as being God ordained, completely contrary to what Jesus taught. Christ was adamant throughout his, his ministry that he did not come to establish Christian empire. He came to plant a church. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to make disciples. He didn't come to make a Christian empire. After this empire was created, Augustine in his book on correction of the Donatists, asked a compelling question. He said, what is the role of a Christian king in the Christian empire? This is chapters five and six of on the correction of the Donatists. The question he asks isn't horrible. They've never had a Christian king before, but the premise of his question, the church has always been oppressed prior to that. They've been persecuted. Now they actually had a Christian in office. And so asking what's the role of a Christian in office is not a bad question, but the premise of the question was horrible because the premise was what's the role of a Christian King in a Christian empire. Hmm. Christian empire doesn't exist. Theologically, there's no way that you can get to a notion of Christian empire while still following the teachings of Christ, Hmm. which is why Eusebius who wrote this heresy introduced it in his book, um, of on um, ecclesiastical history when you would think if you're writing a book called ecclesiastical history right your book would not have a conclusion because ecclesiastical history won't end until the bridegroom of the church returns who is christ but if you read eusebius's account of ecclesiastical history to the last chapter of the last volume there's 11 volumes you will find eusebius acts absolutely has a conclusion to his book. And his conclusion is not the salvation that comes to Rome through Christ, but rather through Constantine. He literally writes Christ out of ecclesiastical history. Why? Well, because if you want to end suffering and persecution and prop up Christian empire, both of which were contrary to the teachings of Jesus The first thing you have to do is write Christ out of ecclesiastical history, which is exactly what Eusebius does. So the question of what's the role of a Christian king in a Christian empire that Augustine asks is evidence that he's not trying to prophesy to Christian empire. He's trying to collude with it. And his conclusion is the role of the Christian king in a Christian empire is to use fear, punishment, and pain to compel people to worship God. So contrary to the teaching of Jesus, it makes me ill. If Jesus was able to look at St. Peter and say, get behind me, Satan, you are not on the side of of, of God, but of men, I'm sure he wouldn't hesitate for a moment to say to Augustine, what are you thinking? You're not on the side of God, but of men. So I am not running to legislate my Christian beliefs. I'm not running to create Christian empire. I'm running to help my nation be more just. I'm running to to help my nation deal with some of its history and even maybe heal from it. But I am seeking to lift up and to serve not just Christians, but our incredibly pluralistic society that we live in today. The privilege we have of living in this very pluralistic society. I I love, there's this teaching of Jesus where, where are the examples of Jesus where he was, he was approached by a rich young ruler and the guy asked him. He said, "How do I get to heaven?" He said, "Well, simple. You know, do these things." Gave him a list of things to do. And the young was like, "Cool, I've done them. I'm in." He said, "Well, wait, hold on. First, sell everything, and then come and follow me." And the rich young was like, "No, I'm not going to do that." And he walked away. Now, the amazing thing about that interaction is Jesus let the guy walk, right? A white evangelical, the Western Christian would never do that, right? We would never let the guy walk. We'd lower the bar. We'd change the truth. We'd bend his arm. We'd never let him walk away. But Jesus let the guy walk. He still had to see him at the synagogue. He still had to run into him in the marketplace. Jesus was willing. He, the guy asked him a question. Jesus answered The guy said, I don't agree with that, and left, and Jesus let him walk. See, the challenge with this heresy of Christendom and Christian empire is that we have to compel people to follow Jesus. No, we don't. That's not our job. Our job is not to make our nation Christian. Our job is not to legislate our theologies. Our job is not to make the country behave in the way that our beliefs dictate. That's not the job of the church. And so had Augustine asked the question, what does it mean to be a Christian king in a secular empire? That would be a much better question. One, I think we should engage more broadly in the United States because we have the ability as Christians to run for office, to vote, even to hold office. But the problem is, is, we're still asking the same question that Augustine asked, which has a horrible premise, which is what does it mean to be a Christian ruler in a Christian kingdom? The United States of America is not, never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. And so we need to find a different way to engage that. I want to read something that I wrote when I, um, I wrote this for Calvin Institute of Christian Worship about a year and a half, about almost two years ago now. And it was right in the middle of um, the families being separated at our borders. And the country was really engaging with this injustice that was happening around our, around our country. And my colleague and friend at um, the Institute asked me, John Whitfleet asked me to write something. They like things in the form of proverbs they asked me to write some of my prophetic message in the form of a proverb. And this is, this is actually published on my personal website, which is wirelesshogan.com. It's called From Prophecy to Proverb. And let me read it to you. Wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. Remember, my brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. When the church merely lobbies one political leader and protests the other, when for the sake of argument our political gain, the body of Christ turns a blind eye to one sin and magnifies another, we are not representing the headship of our body who is Christ. As vile, repulsive, and urgent is the Trump administration's separation of families at our border, it's not the first time. Indian removal, the slave trade, boarding schools, lynchings, Japanese internment camps, mass incarceration, even the deportation numbers of the Obama administration. The list of ways the U.S. government has worked to destroy the family structure of people of color throughout our history is as long as it is depressing. So let's stop pretending that President Trump is the God-ordained savior or the ultimate demise of our union. The same with President Obama. What our nation needs is not for Democrats to be better Democrats, nor do we need Republicans to simply be better Republicans. We don't even need our nation to be more Christian. My brothers and sisters, the United States of America is not, never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. And wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. I agree with Kenz Kounda, the former president of Zambia, who said, what a nation needs more than anything else is not a Christian ruler in the palace, but a Christian prophet with an earshot. Just drop the mic right there. <laughs> so this is why I'm adamant. I'm not the Christian candidate. I'm not trying to make my nation Christian. Do my beliefs and my faith influence how I approach what I'm doing? Absolutely. But I'm not trying to legislate my theologies. I'm not trying to get other people to believe what I believe. I'm trying to fight for human rights. For basic justice. For an understanding that we're all human. And we have a global village now global community we have to find some way to live together that allows people to believe what they believe while others believe something different we have to find a way to make all this work environmentally socially politically economically and that's why i'm running for president not to make the nation christian but to help make our nation a better citizen in this global community
0: well, Candidate Charles, thank you so much. If people who are listening are compelled by the vision that you cast, um, how can they support you? How can they jump into helping your campaign? And how can they learn more about you?
2: Yeah, they can go to my website, which is wire, um, markcharles2020.com. Um M-A-R-K-C-H-A-R-L-E-S 2020.com. Um, I have a nine-minute announcement video that we've we've laid out for our campaign. We released it a year ago in May of 2019. Um, we have um, different pieces of our policies, our platform, we have other ways to engage. You can sign up to volunteer, you can donate. We just started an initiative, you know, because I'm an independent, we have to get on the ballot in all 50 states, which means collecting signatures. And the pandemic has not only made it impossible to physically collect signatures right now, it's made it irresponsible. So, you know, that whole avenue of getting on the ballot has changed. There's three states that allow us to collect signatures remotely. The state of Alaska, the state of um, North Dakota, and the state of New Hampshire. So if you go onto our website, there's a a link there called ballot access and you can click on your state and it will will give you the most up to date information we have about how we're getting on the ballot in your state. And if you're on, if you're in again, Alaska, North Dakota, or New Hampshire, you can actually download our petition, print it and sign it. And then um, in North Dakota, and Alaska, you can email it back to us, scan it and email it to us. Or in all three states, you can stick it in an envelope and send it back to us via the postal mail. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have a printer, you can email us and we'll be happy to physically mail you the petition. But this allows people to sign our petition without having to break social distancing. You don't have to go out in public, you don't have to come to our office, you don't have to do anything. You can just print it in your own house. Any registered voter within your house can sign that petition and then you can simply email it or mail it back to us and you can help us get on the ballot in those three states. In the state of Oklahoma, you can, we actually can get on the ballot with just paying a fee. Now the fee's high, it's $35,000, but we can collect that money from throughout the country. So you can also just go to our website markcharles2020.com and donate to our campaign. Um, our our monthly expenses are fairly low, so we're we're trying to keep those low right now, so we can put as much money as we can towards getting on the ballot in Oklahoma. And once we raise thirty five thousand dollars, we can pay that fee and get on the ballot in the state of Oklahoma. Um, and then if you if you're not in any of those, if you're in any other state, you can go um, and once we know how to get on the ballot in other states, we'll let people know and what we can do. But those are the four states that we're working on right now. And those, the three states, you can sign a petition, but anyone can donate to our campaign and help us get on the ballot in Oklahoma.
0: That's great. And a lot of our audience uh, happens to be in New York. And I see that in New York, they've suspended petitioning. Um, If petitioning is not possible, It says that your your campaign is going to pursue write-in ballot access, and some people may have never done a write-in vote before. Can you explain a little bit about how that uh, happens?
2: Yeah. So again, every state, because voting and elections are state's rights, every state has a different criteria. There's a lot of states where if we can't get on the ballot, we can pursue write-in access, where you can actually just write my name on the ballot. When you go to vote in November, you can write Mark Charles on your ballot and that will count as a vote for me. Um, Again, this is changing weekly because of the pandemic, because of what's happening with COVID-19. Every state is having to adjust ballot access criteria and what they're going to do with their primaries and with, with getting on the ballot for independents like me. And so we're checking back frequently with the secretaries of state from all the states to find out what is changing. Um, And so New York has a fairly high number of signatures required. I think they were um, uh, tens of thousands. I forget the exact number. And they had a fairly um, early deadline. I think it was in June or July, maybe June. I forget now. But um yeah we so we may have to settle for just write in access there now again to be clear this is not in the primaries so the primaries which are happening you know they started in in jan in february and they're going through june um this is not for that i'm not running in a primary i'm not trying to get the the democratic or the republican nomination or the green party or the or the any of the other parties, I'm running as an independent. So the only time they will need to write my name on a ballot is in the general election in November. And we hope to be on the ballot in as many states as possible, but other states we will have to settle for write-in status, which will just mean writing my name in. Um, And we'll have more information about that as those decisions get made in the next few months.
0: Great, thank you so much. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and we really appreciate your insight your wisdom and the vision that you have Kennedy charles thank you for joining us on city image
2: thank you thank you you're very welcome it's a pleasure to be on with both of you thank you for this opportunity and yeah it's been a pleasure to talk with you today